Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. The real app performance has been the U.S. corporate high yield. Are the companies lean enough? Have they trimmed all the fat? The semiconductor business is a really cyclical business. Breaking market headlines and corporate news from across the globe. Do investors like the M&A that we've seen? These are two big time blue chip companies. The window between the peak and cut changing super fast. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. On Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence Show, we dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we're going to provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we'll take a look at Paramount Global and why they're said to be cutting jobs despite hosting a record-breaking Super Bowl. Plus, we'll discuss why food and beverage company Kraft Heinz is experiencing weaker sales. But first, we dive into a major deal that could redefine the U.S. energy sector. Diamondback Energy has agreed to buy fellow Permian Basin driller Endeavor Energy Resources in a $26 billion deal. Love me energy deals. We're joined now by Vince Piazza, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Energy Research Analyst, and we asked him first what he thought of the deal. I think the deal ticks all the boxes that we're going to need to see in this uh, M&A wave in the Permian. It grows Diamondback's acreage. It grows locations, so inventory is not going to be an issue. Uh, in terms of the price that they paid, look, Diamondback in my uh, universe of, of coverage had the highest premium. So they're using their multiple to get this deal done. And so elevated currency along with some cash and debt, they do have a fairly low leverage on their balance sheet. So yeah. I think this picks all of the boxes. They'll throw off significant free cash flow in 2024 and 2025. So in terms of paying off whatever bank loans that they're going to take on for this, it also works out for the founding family of Endeavor. They get to monetize decades of hard work. Vince, is this a merger of equals? Well, in this case, think about what Endeavor brings to the table. It almost doubles Diamondback's Midland acreage, and it brings sizable oil production for the broader Diamondback franchise. So I would tell you that in terms of size, uh, it is a merger of equals, but the family will get roughly 30% of uh, Diamondback with uh, selling off uh, almost uh, half the resource to Diamondback. So um, it basically doubles Diamondback's total size, and uh, the founding family gets about 30% of, of, of the new Diamondback, let's say. Vince, are there any regulatory issues here? A lot of M&A going on in, in this space mm. here. Yeah, you know, it's going to get looked at. So Southwestern and Chesapeake getting together um, out in Appalachia, that's a gas deal. But that will get uh, a very, very clear look, a very, very deep look by the regulators. This will as well. I don't see why it wouldn't because of the actual size of this entity. Um, it's going to be an enterprise value of north of $60 billion. It will be the largest uh, Permian pure play. 
So it'll get looked at. All these deals will get looked at, and it'll take a deeper look, same as Southwestern and mm-hmm. uh, Chesapeake. I was talking to uh, Jen Reed. She covers antitrust yep. for Bloomberg okay. Intelligence, and she's like, yes, like all of these are going to have to get looked at. They're particularly interested in the Exxon Permian uh, Pioneer deal, and that all these deals are definitely going to have the FTC sort of wide-eyed uh, looking at it. But you have to wonder, though, if they want more oil, they're going to have to do it. Right, Vince? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to, I'm just trying to think of like what the rationale will be to block, say, this deal, but like let Exxon and Pioneer go through. Like, you, you can't. This deal is much more North America-centric, much more North America-focused. Uh, so when you think about, you know, Exxon and uh, Pioneer, Pioneer fits within Exxon's Permian portfolio, but Exxon is a large, integrated, multinational franchise. This is more U.S.-centric um, and Permian-centric as well. Um, but look, they're all going to get looked at. Um, it is what it is. Uh, this is a very large transaction. Like I said, Southwestern and Chesapeake is getting looked at. This will get looked at as well. It's an important resource. What you have here, though, is you have resources now in stronger hands. You have ExxonMobil, Chevron, you have Diamondback, you have very large entities with big balance sheets and the capability to take down even greater levels of capital in order to move production from uh, the delineation phase into the production phase. Give me a sense, Vince, I'm putting my banker hat on. Hmm. Can I keep doing a bunch of deals here? I mean, how many players are left? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So we put out last year the top 20 privately held PE-sponsored names in the Permian. In this case, Endeavor being the second largest. Uh, Mewborn, which has mentioned that it wishes to uh, sell, uh, that's the largest of uh, the top 20. That'll go out, we think, because it has been mentioned as a takeover candidate. Similar situation, founding family uh, looking to uh, move the assets. If you think about the top five, three are now gone. So there is a great deal of interest. There's interest uh, by the private players as well, especially the PE-sponsored players. You're getting close to these vintages that are aged, and now this capital needs to be recycled. Uh, So you will see more of that. You will see public buying private. Mm -hmm. Public does have the currency. In the case of Diamondback, they had a premium multiple. Uh, elevated currency that they were able to use to monetize the founding family's investment. And you'll see that as well, especially in the Permian, where you do have this difference of large cap premium valuations looking for assets and the smaller cap names trading at a relative discount to peers, but trading at a discount to the larger names as well. Our thanks to Vincent Piazza, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Energy Research Analyst. We go next to earnings and focus on Hasbro, the toy maker reporting fourth quarter net revenue and adjusted earnings per share that trailed analyst estimates. And this comes as the toy industry continues to suffer from weak consumer demand after that boom in the early days of the pandemic. For more on this, we talked with Lindsay Dutch, Bloomberg Intelligence Consumer Hardline's Senior Analyst. We first asked Lindsay what she made of the quarter. Hasbro definitely disappointed on the quarter as top and bottom line missing. But more importantly, that outlook for 2024 looks pretty rough. They're definitely thinking about the toy industry more bearish than some of their peers like Mattel. And this is coming from a place where they've had more challenges than Mattel in 2023 and even at the very end of 2022. 
There's some concern about profitability improvement for this company. They sort of been, have struggled to raise that operating margin over the past year. And I think that's like a really big worry bead thinking about 2024. They posted an operating margin for 2023, 9.5%. It was the lowest in at least 12 years. Wow. So there's real concern there. So let's just start with the top line in the toy business. Is this a GDP growth business? Less, more? How does this business grow? Yeah, so typically, I mean, the toy business, you know, you think about growth 2 to 3% a year. That toy business boomed with the pandemic. Yep. So we're still coming off of those 2020-2021 highs. And in 2023, the industry contracted about 7% per Circana data. Mattel was thinking that, you know, this year, 2024, would be a little bit better than that, but still contraction. Hasbro is saying down 8%. So definitely a more bearish view on the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, but this year definitely looks rough in terms of toy demand still coming off of those highs. And they don't have Barbie. Um, <laughs> I mean, right. I asked the CEO of Mattel this on TV. I was like, you know, do you need a Barbie too? Like, what's your next evolution here? Uh, I mean, I know the quarter was better than Hasbro, but it still has problems. There's still an activist investor that wants them to spin off their American Girl and Fisher Price business, etc. It's like, do you have to sell more cars if you're not selling dolls? And Hasbro doesn't have Barbie. How reliant is the toy business on movies? Yes. So content has been a big driver over the past couple of years. Barbie is a great example of that. I, I think we also know that you can't have that blockbuster type movie every single year. But a lot of the preschool brands, you know, you can link to a series. So Hasbro does own Peppa Pig. So just getting like this, the animated series there sometimes can help with toy sales. But there's a major connection with entertainment. Entertainment generally across the board, not just Hasbro specific, is, is going to be light in 2024. So they do lose that driver. Hasbro is also different than Mattel in the key categories that they play in. So they own Nerf. So they're really big sort of on that outdoor category, which again, that that's an outsized grower during the pandemic. They play in arts and crafts with Play-Doh. Um, Play-Doh's like, they've come out with some new products, but it's kind of really hard to come up with new innovative things um, in that category. Um, some of their outperformers were like transformers in the past year. Again, an entertainment linked product, you know, that did well because of that. All right, so if I've got a business where the demand is challenged, what do I do on the cost side to try to preserve my margins here? Right. So, you know, Hasbro laid out a plan um, in October of 2022, cutting costs. They kind of realized over time that it wasn't quite enough um, what they were planning. So they sort of doubled that goal, a lot of it coming out of SGNA. They're also offloading some of their brands and basically licensing out to other manufacturers to actually make the products. And that is going to be a key part of, you know, their outlook for a stronger operating margin in that toy segment in 2024. And by that, they're expecting a four to 6% operating margin this year, whereas last year it was an operating loss. It's still a pretty low number. It's well below their targeting 20% over the long term. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done there. What's the Wizards of the Coast segment? Because that um, really hurt. What is that? That includes their Magic of the Gathering, tabletop gaming, digital gaming, 
brands. Mm -hmm. So that has been a top grower for this company over the past couple of years. They're again, lapping difficult comparisons, only expecting three to 5% growth in 2024. But that business is a high margin business for them. So you're talking about 38, 40% margins. But the problem is it's it's closer to 30% of their overall business. So as continued growth there is great, the margin is great, but it's still a smaller part of their mix. So it can't quite offset this weakness that they feel sort of in the traditional toy business. Thanks to Lindsay Dutch, Bloomberg Intelligence Consumer Hardline Senior Analyst. Coming up, we're going to break down why Paramount Global said to be cutting jobs. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Let's turn now to the media and entertainment industry. Earlier in the week, we heard the Paramount Global is cutting roughly 800 jobs or 3% of its workforce. We're told the cuts are a response to the continued loss of cable and satellite TV subscribers to streaming services like Netflix. And this comes despite Paramount hosting a record-breaking Super Bowl TV audience. So for more, we're joined by Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media, and we asked Geetha for her take on this week's news. This is really more, uh, of course, they did have a great uh, Super Bowl, but I think this is really more about the future outlook for the company, and that is super, super bleak. Yes, it was a great night for TV advertising. Uh, we think they got in $700 million in roughly about four hours. But then it's throughout 2023, we've seen... TV advertising declined by low double digits. It was down almost 13% uh, in the latest quarter that they reported. And it's not going to get too much better. And it's not just the challenges on the TV side of the equation. For them, it's also about their streaming business. And they've made good strides, absolutely, in terms of you know streaming subscribers. And again, I, I anticipate that they're going to have some good streaming numbers to report uh, thanks to the Super Bowl. But it is burning a lot of money. Almost $1.7 billion is what they will report in losses for 2023. And before that, they lost about $1.8 billion. So it's just been a continuous drain on the company. And I know there's a lot of talk around perhaps the controlling shareholder, Sherry Redstone, will consider selling all a part of the company. What's the latest on that? So the latest actually in that saga, and this has now been an ongoing drama for for many months now, Paul, uh, the latest is that Byron Allen actually came up with a a bid for all of the company, not just for the controlling stake held through National Amusements. And he actually put up a pretty good bid. Uh, You know, it was uh, $14 billion uh, in terms of equity, so $30 billion enterprise value. Uh, We think it was a pretty fair bid. The problem is, you know, Byron Allen, I don't think anybody is taking him too seriously. He's, you know, had this track record of kind of coming up with these empty bids. So while it is a number, uh, again, we've not really seen a whole lot of action that we would have expected. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So this is a totally unfair question to Paul. Let's pretend you're still an M&A banker here, yeah. investment banker. What would you be talking to Paramount about? I would I would say I think the best buyer here, there's a strategic buyer, maybe Warner Brothers Discovery, but uh, both of those companies, as Geetha well knows, balance sheets are not great. I think I would be shopping it to a, a, a private equity because uh, uh. there's still good for, uh, free cash flows here and let them deal with it. So, Geetha, what is the sense here as, as to, I think about Paramount, I think about Warner Brothers Discovery, what happens to these companies? Because it just feels like, again, some of the big tech companies, they're just not big enough here. And, you know, against Netflix, they're just not big enough. What do they do? So I think Warner Brothers Discovery actually had a pretty interesting move last week, Paul, which was they banded together with ESPN, Disney and Fox to kind of create this sports super app, which will launch uh, in the fall. And that's one way for them to kind of protect at least some part of their linear revenue stream because i mean they've kind of everybody's seeing the writing on the wall here we're we're seeing cord cutting we're seeing about 10 percent of the uh, pay tv subscriber base get eroded year after year we've already lost 30 million subscribers so that's one good way for them i think to kind of control their destiny a little bit uh, in terms of distribution again remember paramount is not part of that bundle so that again is a little bit of uh, you know a strike against them but, you know, you bring up a good point. I think at the end of the day, we are going to have to see consolidation. Of course, as you just pointed out, there were rumors of actually Warner Brothers Discovery being interested in Paramount, but that would be about more than, you know, $60 billion, I think, in debt for those combined mm-hmm. companies. So, yeah, it is it is definitely going to be challenging. But I think consolidation is definitely on the cards. Okay, so then how does that happen? Because if, like, three wrongs don't make a right and you're not going to put all the media companies together because that's going to create more problems. So is it private equity? Like, do you, do you split up? different areas of media within the company? Yeah, I think Paramount, I think one of the things has been, you know, to sell it for parts, right? There are some uh, parts of the company, uh, the TV networks that could be very, very attractive to private equity, as, as you just pointed out, because of the cash flows, right? It's still a business. It used to throw out about $6 billion in EBITDA, but it, it will still throw out about four and a half to almost close to $4.8 billion in EBITDA. So it, again, cash, highly cash generative. Of course, the future, you know, flows don't look so great. But then there has been a lot of interest in the studio part of the business, right? Whether that's, you know, David Ellison with his Skydance Media, maybe somebody else, maybe even an Apple. We haven't necessarily seen any of those, you know, bids kind of come to fruition, Uh, but there definitely will be a lot of interest. But I I think the one thing that we kind of have to wait to get some clarity on is definitely the regulatory environment. We've seen big tech kind of really shy away from anything too splashy, but who knows, maybe when the government changes, all of that will change as well. You know, Geetha, when these uh, networks bid and pay billions of dollars for sports rights, and even if you, you know, you put up that $700 million of ad revenue that you referenced, you know, it's tough to make a, a, a profit on that kind of business. So what the networks have always said is, yes, but we promote other shows on our networks, and that value is really worth paying these big rights fees. But if you're promoting all these shows on the CBS network that nobody's watching because of cord cutting, how valuable is that? <laughs> I mean, I, I thought about that. They're, they were promoting all their shows that I don't think anybody's watching because they've already cut the cord. Yeah, you're absolutely right. For them, though, uh, the one thing that Paramount has done really kind of well, and I don't know whether this is a plus or a minus, but it definitely helps them at least shore up, I think, the total value of their assets is they've actually, all of their sports properties, including the NFL, 
they've actually kind of leaked it outside the bundle. So they were showing it on Paramount Plus day one. And they did the same thing with the Super Bowl uh, as well. So I think even if they're, you know, even if you have cord cutters, they could make the argument that, yes, you know, people can potentially sign up for that service. We saw, of course, Peacock do that with that wildcard NFL game. Again, what they, they know that they're losing subscribers on the pay TV bundle. but So they're trying to they're trying their best. I don't know how successfully to kind of make it up uh, on the streaming side. But you're right. I mean, it is kind of a lose lose. Keith, so what's next? Like, what are you watching uh, for Paramount now? For Paramount, it's definitely, it is an M&A place. Something has to happen. It has to happen fast. Bob Backish, the CEO, has pretty much said it. He, you know, he said he's evaluating uh, Byron Allen's uh, proposal. Again, not sure whether that will necessarily pan out, but somebody has to come up with, with something and, and it, it has to happen quickly. Our thanks to Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media. Paul, let's turn out to Cisco. So the largest maker of computer networking equipment, Cisco announcing plans to cut thousands of jobs, saying the cuts will affect roughly 5% of its workforce. This all comes after a slowdown in corporate tech spending wiped out Cisco's sales growth last quarter. For more on all of this, we spoke with Wu Jin Ho, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. We first asked him if anything stood out from Cisco's quarterly results. I think after the job cuts leak from last quarter, I think there were uh, expectations that there were going to be cuts to estimates. Quite frankly, the big standout for me was that the cuts weren't big enough. You know, 5% OPEX cuts, that's par for the course for what Cisco typically does. But at the end of the day, I mean, based on reports, it looks like a lot of this was expected. You know, which I've followed the Cisco name for decades. I mean, it's one of the founding Silicon Valley tech names based in San Jose, right? Smack in the middle of you know, Silicon yep. Valley. What are they not getting right here? The stock hasn't worked for a long time, and it just, what, from your perspective, what are they just missing here? Well, let's talk about large cap uh, stocks in general, right? If we, if we think about the big bangs, let's say Microsoft, the, the old tech guard, uh, yep. Microsoft, Google, right? They all really led on, on a cloud software transition. If we think about it from the hardware old guard, Cisco, Dell, HPE, or, or the old HP, they're still relatively a hardware business. So you're not going to get the, the fast, sexy growth from the hardware business. I mean, if you look at Cisco, you know, after the estimate cuts, $52 billion for fiscal 24, that brings them back to 2024 levels, right? So you're not getting the growth uh, that people want. And also, you're not getting the margin profiles mm. that, that, that you want as well. So uh, that's why the multiples are lower and, and, and the growth is shallower. So over the last five years, this stock has compounded 3% per year, Cisco. S&P 500, 14.5%. Yep. The S&P information technology sector, uh, 26%. So it's really, really underperformed. Going forward, Wooj, I guess over the next several quarters, what's Cisco saying about their customers and inventory and cutting this forecast suggests that they don't have a lot of great visibility here. If you remember the, the server and storage cycle uh, from a year ago, uh, Cisco is going through that right now. Part of it is because of the supply chain glut. Uh, all of a sudden, their customers got their equipment two quarters ago, and they're taking their time implementing it. So typical cycles are roughly five to six quarters. I was running through the numbers, and we're talking about anywhere between 27 to 30% declines for the next two to three quarters for Cisco for the networking business, not sales but they won't get out of this decline until the second half of fiscal year, which is about a year from now, right? Again, the model's gonna be reworked primarily because of the Splunk deal. The hope is, is that they're gonna have more recurring revenues uh, to uh, boost up the multiples uh, going forward. 
Where's the AI component for Cisco? I will tell you, they're making a lot of good progress. They had a, a billion dollars in bookings in backlog orders with cloud customers. And um, the, the issue is, is that that only represents 2% of total orders, right? So it, it's still relatively small. It is going to be growing and they're probably going to bang the drum louder uh, on the AI theme over the next couple of quarters as these deals really start to to balloon. The one thing is, again, it's it's still a corporate IT name. If I were to pick one AI name on the networking side, it's probably going to be more Arista than Cisco for now. So again, is, is there a way, which is broadly defined on, on the hardware side, have investors embraced any of the hardware names as AI plays? Is it because it just doesn't feel like it. It feels like what I'm hearing from a lot of your folks that, on the tech team at Bloomberg Intelligence, it's kind of software, applications, that kind of thing. I can name four. Arista Networks, wow. uh, Supermicro, and Dell, and they reported in a couple of weeks. There's a growing uh, AI story there. And one name that's been underappreciated is probably HPE. They have a high-performance computing business, but the story is a little muddled because of a pending Juniper deal. And then there's, um, you know, my, my colleague, Steve Zhang, he covers the white box uh, vendors, and there's some uh, white box vendors that may potentially uh, benefit because they sell server equipment to the cloud guys. Our thanks to Wu Jinho, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. Coming up on the program, we'll discuss why food and beverage company Kraft Heinz is experiencing weaker sales. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. And this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We move next to the food and beverage industry. So earlier in the week, Kraft Heinz reported first consolidated organic sales decline since the second quarter of 2021. We heard from Jennifer Bartashis, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Retail Staples and Packaged Food. We first asked Jennifer for her key takeaways from Kraft's earnings results. The big surprise for Kraft was that volume uh, was down, which was not a surprise, but it was down more than prices rose. Um, and that really put pressure on the ability to generate sales growth. Um, and so uh, organic sales were negative for the first time uh, since 2020. And although there's some momentum in the business, uh, it's got people concerned. So, Jen, as I understand the packaged food business from reading your research and talking to you, you know, I guess post-pandemic volumes are down, but they've been able to make up for it by raising prices more. So is that game kind of played out now? Yeah, it, it, it basically, a lot of these companies have run out of their pricing power. And what Good. that means is, you know, they were able to raise prices because their input costs were higher, whether it was ingredients or transportation or packaging. But as inflation is coming down, They've, they're losing the ability to pass through additional uh, price increases, which means that if you want to have top line growth or organic sales growth, you have to have positive volume growth um, because you're not getting it from just higher price anymore. Um, and the problem Kraft Heinz has right now is that volume is still down, price is lower than it's been, um, and they're not seeing that bounce back in volume that typically lower pricing would encourage. Okay, so a couple things to focus on. Let's go to the product side then, because you mentioned that a few times. So volumes are down. 
it doesn't seem like that's just a pricing power thing. Do they not have the right products right now? Well, I think their their portfolio is actually pretty good. It's just that the consumer is not buying as much as they were before. So if you think back to pre-pandemic, people had huge pantries and everything was stocked. They had lots of boxed goods in there. Um, and now people are still a little bit more conservative and buying more on a need basis uh, rather than a stockpiling basis. And so um, until people start to bulk up those pantries again, it's hard to entice them to buy more than what they just need for this week. So as I look at the uh, analyst forecast, Jen, I kind of see the one and a half to two to two and a half percent revenue growth in the next several years. That really is the story for most of these consumer packaged goods companies, isn't it? It really is, um, especially for companies where the bulk of their portfolio are what you would call center of the store items. Um, so that's the canned items, the boxed items. That type of outlook for top line growth is pretty much in line with where you would expect normal inflation rates to be. And so that in and of itself is, is probably a reasonable expectation for where these companies can go over the next few years. Do you think that prices then will come down or do you think that they stay sticky? Prices will slowly come down. Retailers are looking to pass through cost savings to their customers. So there will be higher pressure on packaged food companies to lower prices as well. And as their input costs or packaging costs come down, it's harder for them to justify holding prices at a higher level and not passing through some of those savings. So while prices may never come back down to where they were pre-pandemic, they should come down a little bit from where they were in terms of peak pricing in the last 18 months. A little bit. I, know. I don't know if we like no, a little bit. No, we don't. And yeah. that's and that's what that's the problem. That's a problem for a lot of people, and it's a problem for the politicians who are saying inflation's still a bad story here. So, all right. So, Jen, with these names like Kraft Heinz and General Mills and Kellogg's, I got a you know low single digit revenue growth. I'm looking. I got dividend yields for Kraft Heinz about four point seven percent. I mean, what am I owning this thing for? Am I owning it for single digit kind of maybe stock price return plus some dividend yield, and that's my game? That's probably the value play at the moment, right? Meaning you've got steady, kind of slow and steady growth. You've got a, a reasonable dividend. They do do uh, share buybacks, you know, so there's some some shareholder benefit there. And, you know, as consumers start to pick up their spending, then we may see a better outlook for these companies as well. Who does Kraft compete with? Like the Coke and Pepsi. I know that Pepsi was all like snacks, 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 but they have the soft drink business. Who's like a straight up Kraft competitor? Someone like Conagra um, would oh, be, a, a, okay. you know, or Campbell Soup. You know, those would be kind of those center type store companies uh, that would compete most directly with the Kraft Heinz. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Jen, I look at the at the holders list here, and I, I forgot about this. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, uh, by far the biggest shareholder uh, of this company with about 26, 27% ownership. What has Berkshire Hathaway publicly said about this investment? How long have they owned it? What do they say about their stake here? Well, they've been involved for a very, very long time. Uh, haven't made a lot of uh, public comments lately, um, but when uh, Kraft Heinz began its transformation plan, which was now a little over three years ago, 
Berkshire Hathaway was very positive on that transformation story. And to be fair, Kraft Heinz has executed on that transformation plan and generally ahead of schedule when it comes to cost savings initiatives, um, streamlining things, rebalancing their portfolio. So they really have been sticking to that plan and delivering ahead of schedule. Um, it's just that it's a multi-year process. Jen, in your coverage area, um, you know, you got the staples, the packaged food companies. What's the kind of the, the best idea? What do you talk to clients about most often? Well, right now, um, we're talking to people about, you know, who is it that has taken the least amount of price increases over the last, say, 18 months, and where are volumes holding up? Because to be successful over 2024 and into 2025, it really is that question of how are you going to actually drive overall growth and profitability? Um, and so the companies that have been more conservative and been more prudent in that approach um, are the ones who are positioned right now to maybe benefit from that. So you, you have know, an, benefit an, from an, those actions. Like what's what's a representative name there? Uh, so a good example there would be Mondelez, um, where they Another took a lot company. less price um, than than, and actually the spinoff from Kraft Heinz. Oh, <laughs> um, I about that. yeah, they've been a little bit more prudent in terms of their price increases, and what we've also seen is that their volume has held up better. Hey Jen, what, what what's something you really don't like right now? Like what's sort of a negative trend? Because I'm also trying to understand for some of these names, the n normalization that we've seen, sort of backtrack the last four years and erase that. And that's where we have to kind of pick up and go from there. I think one of the things that is an issue for the industry is that everyone still believes that they can optimize their portfolio and that they're going to find a buyer for the products and the product lines that they don't want hmm. at a good multiple. At the end of the day, there aren't a lot of buyers out there for you know, uh, categories that are slow growth or declining. Um, and so there's maybe a little bit of a mismatch in terms of the belief that they can streamline their portfolio, get up, you know, all the value that they think they deserve out of it. And yet I don't see a whole, you know, a whole suite of buyers lining up to look at those products. Hershey, this company went public in 1927. Oh boy. They did one follow on offering. Mm -hmm. And then for about a period, about 12 months in 1993 or four, we pitched them hard on mm -hmm. doing another follow-on. We actually had a good analyst on, on, on the name and the company like this. We went to Hershey probably six or seven times in, in the space of a year, pitching a follow-on, pitching a follow-on, nothing. Didn't get paid, but uh, got the Hershey and got a lot of Hershey chocolate. There's um, that. There's that. So, um, so Jen, what does a company like Hershey do? It's one of those things, I know they've gotten bigger through some acquisitions, but they're still relatively a, a small player relative to some of the other big names, but is their brand so good that they can kind of remain independent? Yeah, I, I believe that the Hershey brand is really iconic. And if you think about some of their biggest um, chocolate lines, there really aren't a lot of mass targeted competitors out there. When it comes to kind of that mass market, it's hard for an external brand to come in and get the kind of penetration that Hershey has. And in addition, Hershey has really done a good job of diversifying into the broader snacking. Um, so they own, you know, they own popcorn brand, they own, mm. you know, pretzel brand, they've done a good job of diversifying, and that'll help them with their long term growth as well. Our thanks to Jennifer Bartashis, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst. She covers retail stables and packaged food. A return now to earnings from Deere. So the world's biggest farm machinery producer trimmed its profit outlook for this year. And this comes as crop prices are giving farmers less money to use on those equipment purchases. To help recap, we were joined by Christopher Cialino, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Machinery Analyst. 
we first asked Chris his take on Deere's earnings. The quarter was great, really. Much better than we anticipated. Across the board beats uh, both top line and margins for most of the businesses. But the outlook was the disappointment of the quarter. They cut net income guidance by about 5%. And that's largely reflective of incremental weakness in the ag business, specifically the large ag business. Um, And there's really two components to that. One, Europe. Deere now plans to underproduce retail demand due to some weakness in Central and Eastern Europe, given the conflict there. So they're going to try to bring down inventories. They're already underproducing in Brazil as well. And then the second component of the cut was really some additional softness beginning to transpire here in North America. We saw some of the order velocity start to moderate. So demand seems to kind of be trending toward the low end of their down 10 to 15% industry outlook when it comes to large ag equipment. Yeah, let's get through some of these here. Production, precision, agnet sales for their yearly forecast are looking down 20% worse than estimated. Construction and forestry net sales down 5 to 10 percent. Small ag and turf net sales down 10 to 15 percent. Yiki, is this a (laughs) early cycle, mid-cycle, or late cycle read on the economy? We're early in an ag downturn. Last year was a peak production levels. You know, historically, you don't have one-year downturn. So I would suspect this is kind of the beginning of a a multi-year downturn. And some of the numbers that you're seeing that you reference on their guidance are well below, uh, you know, market retail demand expectations, suggesting that, you know, they they have some more work to do on bringing down inventory levels. Values continue to kind of come down here over the last 12 months. And I suspect you'll see further the pressure um, uh, on the use side. Um, new equipment pricing, you know, Deere's kind of guiding to uh, 1.5%, which is kind of below historical averages. And remember, we're coming off of, you know, three years of really strong, phenomenal pricing. So returning to, a, a, I would say, a below normal historical trend, which will also be a drag on margins. Um, Caterpillar had a different kind of read, and I appreciate they also do metals and mining and stuff. So is it going to be the diversified players that are going to really win on this? Yeah, so I, you know, construction's holding up um, certainly better than the farmer and then the ag economy. Um, A a couple different moving pieces there. I mean, you still have a tremendous amount of infrastructure-related funds and government stimulus coming through the system um, that will not only be kind of a tailwind here in 24, but even 25 and 26. So I I think that certainly helps offset some of the the cyclical headwinds facing both the the resi or non-residential markets. Um, But if you look at the farm economy, Um, almost kind of a a completely different story. You look at crop prices, which are ultimately the biggest driver of farm income and equipment purchases, corn, soy, wheat down, you know, 25, 35% Mm. plus. So that's beginning to trickle through to farm incomes. Farmer incomes are going to be down 26% this year. um, And I suspect we'll be under further pressure as we exit the year too. Our thanks to Chris Cialino, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Machinery Analyst. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.